You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ho, ho, ho. Happy New Year. That's not correct. Uh, this is the constant, the history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, but that's not important right now. Because today, we're going to be listening to another podcast. It is called Historical Blindness, hosted by Nathaniel Lloyd. And if you regularly listen to and enjoy this show, it seems kind of like a given that you'll appreciate historical blindness. Like me, Nathaniel regularly digs up obscure and fascinating stories from history that have gone overlooked or misrepresented. And like me, much more than me, honestly, he brings a real scholarly and scrupulous eye to those stories while still managing to turn out a gripping good yarn. We've covered a lot of the same stories, coincidentally, over the years, like werewolves, the Flan and Isles Lighthouse, gun violence, ether, and he's also told a bunch of stories that I will be telling in the future. I hope the same is true the other way around. And I think it's sort of fascinating to see the differences in our approaches. For instance, the episode I'm about to play is tangentially related to an episode of The Constant called Heart of Darkness, which I aired two and some odd years ago. It's about the history of AIDS conspiracy theories and what we can learn from them about the current crop of COVID conspiracies. It is truly fascinating, informative, and entertaining. So stick around, listen up, and then go over and subscribe to Historical Blindness. Right, take it away, Nathaniel. In 2020, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, The Donald Trump administration, amid criticism of its response to the crisis, asserted without evidence that China was to blame for the virus. Certainly the original epicenter of the outbreak occurred in Wuhan, but as a way to deflect blame from their handling of the situation, the Trump administration promoted an emerging hypothesis that the virus had been released upon the Chinese population in a quote-unquote lab leak, or even that it had been developed as a bioweapon. Medical scientists and the scholarly community were quick to decry this assertion, as study of the virus, a variant of the coronavirus that caused the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, epidemic in the early 2000s, showed that it had likely crossed the species barrier, much like its predecessor. What their research was showing was that what was most likely to blame were the conditions of the wet markets and the practices of the wildlife trade in China. However, the existence of the Wuhan Institute of Virology 
and the fact that it had been studying coronaviruses that cause respiratory infections ever since the 2003 SARS outbreak was viewed by many as a kind of smoking gun. Rumors about researchers at this institute falling ill with flu-like symptoms late in 2019 further encouraged the lab leak hypothesis, though there is no evidence that any researchers at the institute had COVID-19. Since that time, it has become a mire of conspiracy speculation, with the institute being depicted as a U.S.-funded bioweapons development site and with further claims that Anthony Fauci, a public health spokesman during the first year of the pandemic and chief medical advisor to the president during the first two years of the Biden administration, was himself personally responsible for quote-unquote gain-of-function research to develop a more transmissible virus. While the scholarly community and the intelligence community worked slowly but surely to assemble evidence for a natural origin, the conspiracist community latched onto any gaps in their evidence as if it proved the opposite. Most recently, a declassified report by the U.S. Department of Energy that claimed with quote-unquote low confidence that the lab leak theory was correct, along with the FBI director's comments indicating that his agency agreed, has resulted in numerous major press reports that act like it has been proven, even though this conclusion runs counter to the findings of most other federal agencies and intelligence services and scientific consensus. The fact is that it is still too early to draw such a conclusion which is exactly why they have been drawn with quote-unquote low confidence. Even as I wrote this, President Biden signed the COVID-19 Origin Act to declassify intelligence on the subject, which has been deemed inconclusive. And this announcement came on the heels of a further revelation that samples deposited by Chinese researchers in a virology database show that the novel coronavirus was present in civets and raccoon dogs sold at a Wuhan wet market. Yet these developments will not likely be trumpeted with quite the same gusto by the press, which often amplifies conspiracy claims because it gets them clicks and views. When the recent conclusions of the Department of Energy were making headlines, a disgruntled listener who insisted he was, quote, not an idiot, end quote, emailed me to say that since, quote, COVID-19 is thought to have escaped a lab, end quote, he hoped I would, quote, reconsider the possibility of HIV having been foisted upon us, end quote. But of course, we know that the notion of HIV having been created as a bioweapon is a baseless conspiracy claim widely spread by the KGB. Really, the story of how this myth appeared and was propagated for political purposes serves as the perfect example from history of why we must reserve judgment about the origin of COVID until the evidence is more conclusive. This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and today I'll be joined by a special guest far more informed than I on this topic to share the insightful story of Infection, Operation Denver, and the engineering of AIDS conspiracy legends.
Welcome to Historical Blindness. Before I continue with this story, since I've heard that the best way to combat misinformation is not to tease the accurate information until later, but to state the truth at the outset of your discussion, let's start by talking about the natural origin of AIDS. Just as medical scientists have been studying the natural origin of COVID since its emergence, Ever since the 1981 recognition of acquired immune deficiency syndrome as a new disease and the subsequent identification of the causative retrovirus, now called the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV, scientists studied it and hypothesized about its natural origin. Early on, even though it seemed to have emerged in America, it was believed to have come, quote-unquote, out of Africa because of the discovery of its similarity to a simian virus known to affect primates in sub-Saharan Africa. With far more time spent studying this pathogenesis than has been spent studying COVID, it has been borne out with consistent evidence that HIV passed naturally to humans through a cross-species transmission, that it actually first appeared in West Central Africa then came to Haiti before emerging in America. All long before the years when it would subsequently be claimed that the CIA was developing it as a bioweapon. And the intelligence services that were responsible for legitimizing and spreading these baseless claims have since confessed. Well, actually, already in the 1980s, there were experts in the United States government in the so-called Active Measures Working Group who were attributing these, this thesis that HIV was developed as a biological weapon. They were already saying in the 1980s that it was Soviet disinformation, and they generally attributed it to the KGB. It was only after the end of the Cold War that, for example, in 1992, the head of the successor to the KGB, the FSB, uh, Evgeny Primakov, confessed that, yes, it had been uh, disinformation that they had been spreading and that it had been the KGB. And shortly thereafter, there were a couple of Stasi officers who published a uh, basically their memoirs, if you will. And in their memoirs, they claimed that the Stasi also played a role in this uh, disinformation campaign. So that was basically when it became known that the KGB was behind it. That is Dr. Douglas Selvage, historian at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Dr. Selvage generously agreed to chat with me recently on this topic. As for hard evidence of the workings of the KGB's program and the Stasi's involvement in it, that was lacking for a long time, causing some to doubt. But eventually, it was discovered in the archives of Bulgaria's secret police. Christopher Nering, uh, he was a doctoral student uh, working on his dissertation in Bulgaria about uh, cooperation between the Bulgarian state security, uh, the Stasi and the KGB. At uh, my agency, I was working at the Stasi Records Agency. He worked for us as a basically as a paid researcher there, and he found documents about KGB and Stasi active measures. And he's the one who sort of found the telegram where the KGB basically uh, telegraphed their Bulgarian colleagues uh, in 1985 and said, "Guess what? We're you know starting this worldwide uh, campaign to spread the thesis that you know." HIV or the virus that caused AIDS was developed as a biological weapon in the United States by the Pentagon and the CIA. 
and asking them to help out with the disinformation campaign. So I guess that's sort of what you call a smoking gun. <laughs> Dr. Selvage published a German language study irrefutably proving not only the existence of the KGB disinformation campaign, but also the nature and details of the significant involvement of East German intelligence in spreading the myth. He has further published major papers on the topic in the Journal of Cold War Studies, as well as on Open Democracy and the Wilson Center website, and you'll be hearing from him throughout the episode. It would be inaccurate to suggest that Russian disinformation is entirely responsible for the invention of the conspiracy claim that HIV was developed by the U.S. government. Before the first known insertion of the narrative into the media by the KGB, some form of the conspiracy theory had already arisen among the community most affected by AIDS during the first years of the epidemic. More than a week before the first known use of the conspiracy claim by the KGB, Boston's Gay Community News and New York's Native, another newspaper focused on gay issues and the gay community, printed and repeated the erroneous claim that AIDS was a variant of the African swine fever virus. And pieces in these papers argued, without evidence, it had been brought across the Atlantic by the CIA for biological warfare purposes in Cuba. The fact that the conspiracy theory originated in a marginalized and oppressed community is no surprise. You know, when one group is sort of marginalized in a given society and they've been victims of conspiracies before or repressive policies, uh, oftentimes they react by developing conspiracy theories. And the fact that the Reagan administration was so slow to act to combat the AIDS epidemic basically claiming it was a homosexual disease. Also, if you will, the right-wing fundamentalist sort of preachers, also the right-wing fundamentalist uh, uh, politicians and the Republican Party at the time were saying it's a curse by God. And, you know, why should anybody get in the way of a curse from God? Because, you know, God is punishing people and therefore who are we to try to intervene, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, there's some people in the gay community are saying, yeah, they actually want to kill us. Likewise, as the black community came to be greatly affected by AIDS later in the 80s, it seemed pretty reasonable to many that they may be the victims of some sort of quote-unquote ethnic weapon, especially since history showed the U.S. government was entirely capable of such atrocity. And especially for African Americans, again, as victims of repression, there was a famous uh, Tuskegee experiment where for 30 years, uh, African American, I think mainly sharecroppers in the American South who had uh, been infected with syphilis, the U.S. Public Health Service had sort of tracked their health and the health of their relatives and descendants and their spouses without providing effective treatment. Even after penicillin was proven to be an effective treatment against syphilis, they basically let you know these people die from syphilis or spread it without giving them any treatment. So this sort of experimentation, this sort of experience certainly made African-Americans very wary of the U.S. Public Health Service, the CDC, and also what the U.S. government was saying about diseases in general. Also fresh in the minds of the American public were the church committee revelations about Operation MK Ultra, the CIA search for mind control drugs, and MK Naomi which developed biological and chemical warfare technology. 
These revelations led to Richard Nixon's 1969 executive order banning the military use of biological weapons. And then shortly thereafter, even after this disinformation campaign had started, then there were revelations about uh, nuclear experiments where, you know, people like the downwinders in Washington state where, you know, they'd been exposed to radiation without their knowledge to basically figure out, oh, what effects does radiation have there? You know, there's like more and more things coming out. And of course, this is all grist for the propaganda mill in Moscow once they, you know, pick up on this thesis. Certainly, the Soviets had agents in America observing the media for any social and political conflicts they could leverage in their disinformation. And having recently been accused of developing biological weapons themselves, the opportunity to deflect such allegations and simultaneously discredit the Reagan administration by suggesting it had been ignoring this ban and engaging in biological warfare against America's own citizens was too great to pass up. If one looks up the Soviet AIDS disinformation campaign today on the internet, one finds that it is widely called Operation Infection with a K, when in fact, as Dr. Selvage has shown in his work, the campaign was actually called Operation Denver. There are a few reasons for that. There were a couple of Stasi officers who published a, uh, basically their memoirs, if you will. And, and in their memoirs, they claimed that the Stasi also played a role in this uh, disinformation campaign. And then uh, based on especially the revelations of this one former Stasi officer, uh, Gunter Bonsack, he mentioned they were involved in the AIDS disinformation campaign, but he didn't use the term Operation Infection. But then later, the historian Thomas Bogart was writing an article about uh, the AIDS disinformation campaign. This was before these archives in Bulgaria were open and these new materials were available. And he used Bonesack basically as one of his you know, main sources. He corresponded with him. And that's when Bonesack said it was called Operation Infection. But then what we found in the Bulgarian archives was, you know, they called it Operation Denver. And then at uh, the Stasi, in the Stasi records, although most of the files there, foreign intelligence files were destroyed, there's still the card catalog. And then there was an actual Denver. Uh, so it was clearly called Operation Denver. We actually don't know what the Soviets called it. They didn't use a code name when they were talking, you know, with the Bulgarians. Uh, the Bulgarians called it for what they did for it, pandemic. <laughs> uh, so they had different names. We actually really don't know what the Soviets called it. I doubt it was called infection because there was a campaign of active measures that were ongoing against Radio Free Europe, and they used infection as the code name for that. So sometimes they recycle code names and use them for different things. But I would find it unusual that they would, you know, reuse the same code name you know, at the same time, two campaigns of active measures with the same code name seems unlikely to me. The other reason is that it's just a better name. It is more evocative of the actual nature of the program, and it has led to a useful metaphor describing the spread of conspiracy theories and disinformation as a kind of viral infection. Indeed, the New York Times even produced a nearly hour-long documentary on the subject complete with engaging animation that calls the operation by this incorrect name and makes much use of that extended metaphor. It's for that reason, and for search engine optimization, 
that I've used it in the title of this episode in order to catch those keyword searches. While he has argued against the incorrect designation of the program, Dr. Selvage has himself made clever use of the metaphor, acknowledging that conspiracy claims spread like a viral infection, especially on the internet, where they spread as memes. He makes the fantastic point, however, that the KGB did not invent this quote-unquote virus, but rather since they modified conspiracy claims that had already appeared in order to make them spread more virally, it can be said that they engineered this claim to make it more infectious, a process Selvage cleverly calls, quote, mimetic engineering, end quote. Well, I mean, the term uh, Operation Infection is infectious, and of course, I guess I did that a little bit when I was talking about mimetic engineering because I found these similarities. You know, they were talking about the KGB was kept uh, mentioning genetic engineering, but actually they were the ones sort of, you know, engineering these memes or, you know, units of thought. In order to draw a more modern parallel to the spread of COVID misinformation, it might be said that Soviet and East German intelligence performed gain-of-function research on existing conspiracy claims and, as a result, turned a small outbreak of conspiracy theory into a disinformation pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, in the case of the KGB, what they did was, that, okay, there's sort of this naturally spreading, if you will, conspiracy theory in the United States, especially in the gay community and then later in the African-American community. And this is something that the KGB picked up on and they wanted to spread internationally. They added this element of Fort Detrick, you know, the specific place to use it as sort of a way to attack U.S. biological weapons research. Then in Africa, they would say, well, see, these Americans are saying it's a natural virus and it comes, you know, naturally out of Africa. Well, see, they're just trying to blame Africa again for their problems. And this shows, you know, this is typical of U.S. racism. So they would, you know, develop the conspiracy theory. They would add elements to it different to make it uh, basically spread better in different parts of the world. On July 17, 1983, the very same month that this conspiracy claim appeared in newspapers serving the gay community in America, a newspaper in India called The Patriot published an anonymous letter purporting to be from an eminent U.S. scientist. The letter claimed that the Pentagon had not abandoned its biological weapons program after Nixon's executive order to do so, and that the CIA and the CDC had discovered and developed HIV at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick in Maryland, a facility known for its research into biological warfare and defensive countermeasures against it. This would prove to be the principal Soviet contribution to the conspiracy claim. The fact that the anonymous author claimed to be an anthropologist, not an infectious disease expert, and cited sources like the magazine Army Research Development and Acquisition, not your typical reading for an anthropologist, but just the sort of publication the KGB monitored, went a long way toward demonstrating that the letter was KGB propaganda, as did the poor English of the supposed American academic who wrote the letter. But beyond these tells, the intelligence community was aware that the KGB actually helped establish the Patriot in 1967 and regularly used it as their mouthpiece to circulate propaganda. 
The Patriot newspaper had been known since the 1960s. There have been accusations, and I think it's been pretty much established that they were receiving money under the table from the KGB in India to you know, publish certain articles. I wouldn't say that everything in the newspaper was necessarily KGB disinformation. They were certainly left and uh, anti-US or whatever, but <laughs> like sensationalist stories. But uh, certainly the KGB, it was a sort of known you know, place where they published things. This was a tried and true method for the KGB. Plant the seed of a story in an Indian newspaper and watch it get picked up and spread in other papers. For example, in 1968, during the Vietnam War, the KGB likewise forged a letter claiming that the U.S. was using biological weapons in Southeast Asia, and they spread it by placing it in a Bombay newspaper. But interestingly, where this campaign came from, and this is actually important for today's Russian disinformation, is originally there was this uh, disinformation campaign called Operation Cockroaches. And there was a U.S. researcher in Pakistan, in Lahore, who was doing research on mosquitoes, who was trying to find different ways to combat malaria. But they had already used that in India for earlier disinformation, where they said, oh, there's this U.S. researcher in Lahore, Pakistan, and he's weaponizing mosquitoes uh, to carry you know, deadly diseases over the border, basically for bioweapons research. And in the end, because of all the uproar it caused in uh, India and in Pakistan, uh, this researcher had to pack and go home back to the United States. And so then in 1983, the Patriot, in this article you mentioned, AIDS May Invade India, they built, and this is typical of the KGB too, or their disinformation, they build on their earlier measures. So in this case, they said, oh, remember how, you know, there was this, you know, U.S. research over there in Pakistan who was, uh, you know, doing bioweapons research and it threatened to cross the border. Well, you know, there's this new thing called AIDS and, you know, they seem to be doing experiments with that as well. And so AIDS may invade India. It might start infecting people here. Oh, and by the way, it, you know, was probably, it was developed at Fort Detrick <laughs> and that, uh, you know, that it's a U.S. bioweapon and it could invade India. So this is sort of a one-off active measure was typical of sort of Soviet disinformation to, you know, pit India against Pakistan to reassure India they should maintain their alignment with the Soviet Union against, you know, the United States because, you know, the United States is clearly evil and here they are plotting yet again to do these terrible things to India. The Patriot story did not spread far, but in a couple years, as AIDS became a global crisis and as accusations were made of the USSR engaging in biological weapons development themselves, the KGB resumed their campaign with a vengeance. In 1985, they published a story in the Literary Gazette, their principal mouthpiece, which cited the fake Patriot letter as if it were evidence. Somebody apparently in the KGB said, you know, well, guess what? There's this new disease, you know, HIV AIDS. Maybe we should, you know, just build on this. And then they used another place. And this is where they often place disinformation in the Soviet Union. But there's actually this newspaper called Literary Gazette, Literatoinaya Gazette. And it was for Soviet intellectuals and writers. It was sort of known in the post-Khrushchev thaw as sort of being this place where, you know, famous Soviet writers could publish articles about literature or whatever. Well, the KGB <laughs> had their page in a sense, or they were always contributing articles to it uh, under various names. You know, for example, this Operation Cockroaches had been, you know, the main article had been in Literaturnaya Gazeta. And now there's this new article, 1985, you know, about, you know, 
about the AIDS sensation, right? And it was to basically repeated these accusations about AIDS being a bioweapon developed at a U.S. laboratory and it had been developed at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And they, they were hoping that this would get the disinformation campaign off the ground, right? This article argued that HIV's spread in America was the result of experiments on unsuspecting citizens, suggested AIDS victims should sue the CIA, and warned the nations of the world not to host the U.S. armed forces because American soldiers were surely carriers of the scourge. Now for a brief intermission. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil. Did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Now, back to the show. Even though these news articles, which mixed fact with baseless conspiracy fiction, were illegitimate, they could then be cited to seemingly legitimize further articles, some likewise placed by the KGB and others written by people who were unwittingly helping them spread their narrative. The KGB was known for, you know, 
sometimes just planting their own stories that they had developed in newspapers, including Soviet newspapers, with the hope that they would be picked up on overseas. <laughs> uh, and in other cases, they had, you know, journalists in other countries who were willing to write something, you know, tailor-made to their, you know, theses, or they would just basically put their name on something that the KGB had put together. But what the KGB campaign really needed was an academic to lend their claims scholarly clout and their partner agency, the Stasi, or Ministry of State Security of East Germany, provided it to them. His name was Jakob Segal, a committed communist who had been born in Russia and studied biology in Germany. As a Jew, he had been forced to flee Nazi Germany for France, where he completed his doctorate. When the Nazis invaded France, he joined the resistance, where he likely first came in contact with Soviet intelligence. He returned to Germany after the war, becoming the head of the Institute for Applied Bacteriology in East Berlin, and, according to former Stasi agents, acted as an operative or informer for the Stasi. You know, the Soviets had basically told the Stasi and the other, you know, state security service in Eastern Europe that they were looking for scientists. And the Soviet bloc put back up this claim that they made, somebody who make it scientific. And the Stasi claimed uh, that they sort of, you know, covertly encouraged uh, Jakob Segal to do this. They've been looking around for scientists, well, who could do this? And they said, oh, there's this, you know, scientist, he says that he's retired, but, you know, he's sort of worked before with the KGB and Stasi, this guy, Jakob Segal, maybe we could put him on this. Likely at the behest of the Stasi and KGB, or perhaps just with their sly encouragement, Segal began to produce scholarly-style literature that argued against the African origin of HIV, suggesting that the virus was an artificial synthesis of the human T-cell lymphotropic virus and a retrovirus that affects sheep, even though the technology required to recombine parts of viruses did not exist at the time, and those two viruses are too distinct to even be synthesized, and asserting, with no evidence whatsoever, the truth of a very specific scenario. He added a new element to it. He said, well, it was, you know, it was an accident that it was released the way it was because they thought it was going to be an effective bioweapon. And what happened was they tested this bioweapon on prisoners in Maryland around Fort Detrick at various prisons. Uh, basically, he claimed that these prisoners had been offered the possibility of getting out of prison early if they were willing to take part in this experiment. And they basically signed off on it. And so they were infected with this HIV or this AIDS virus. And uh, they waited a couple months or, you know, six months and nothing happened. And they said, OK, well, apparently this isn't a good bioweapon. And these prisoners were basically given early release from prison, you know, maybe a year later or more that they first then began to show symptoms or began to spread it. His claims relied not only on complete speculation, but also on two dubious assumptions. First, he asserted that these ex-convict test subjects must have made their way from Fort Detrick in Maryland to New York City, where the first outbreak occurred, because they were criminals and there simply was no criminal community to accommodate them in nearby Washington, D.C., when the truth is Washington's crime rate was extremely high at the time. And second, he claimed that because the test subjects must have been convicts who had spent a long time in prison, 
they must also have become homosexual, thus explaining why they introduced the virus specifically into the gay community. Now, of course, there are a number of problems with this thesis. First of all, you know, this idea of, you know, uh, anybody who's in prison becomes gay or whatever. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stereotypes here typical of conspiracy theories. Who's involved in the conspiracy? And the, the number keeps getting larger and larger. So for example, there were the prisoners who were experimented upon. There were the doctors who gave them the disease. There were the bureaucrats at the Pentagon. There were the people at Fort Detrick. There were the prison authorities who, you know, gave them the early release or whatever from prison. And, you know, none of these people were ever found who said, oh yeah, I was the one who was experimented upon or you know, yeah, I knew about this experiment. It, you know, it's just totally conjecture that, you know, he developed. And then the question is, well, why isn't this coming out in the press? Well, then there's like, you know, why isn't the U.S. press covering it? And then Sagal said, well, this is a big conspiracy, too, to cover it up. The U.S. government, you know, controls the press or puts pressure on the press so they don't report it. So the conspiracy keeps getting larger and larger. And this is typical of conspiracy theories is, you know, this cascade effect where the circle of conspirators becomes larger and larger, and somehow they keep everything silent. Considering the stereotypes relied on and the lack of evidence provided by Segal, it is unsurprising that the scientific community largely ignored him or scorned his claims, as was the case with one AIDS expert who called it, quote, nothing but a hypothesis and not a very original one at that, end quote, in popular German magazine Der Spiegel. However, while the academic world never took him seriously, the press in the Third World and the tabloid press in the UK became unwitting stooges for Soviet intelligence by spreading Segal's thesis far and wide. Meanwhile, in the US, some useful idiots did their part to strengthen the resolve of Soviet propagandists and promote aspects of their disinformation by spreading a variant conspiracy theory that blamed the Soviets for engineering HIV. Dr. Selvage cleverly calls this a different, quote-unquote, strain of the same viral conspiracy claim, and it was promulgated by Lyndon LaRouche. LaRouche is a fascinating character that everyone in America should know about, but I suspect he is largely forgotten. Originally, actually, LaRouche had started off on the radical left, but then he had started combating other left-wing groups. There's something called Operation Mop-Up when he told his supporters to basically beat up on other sort of Marxist-Leninists out there protesting or whatever. But then eventually he was moving more to the right and he kept bringing up conspiracy theories about, I think it was Khazars, which was basically a stand-in for the Jews. Uh, he's talking, putting, you know, like the Queen Elizabeth was a drug dealer and, you know, there are all these sort of different conspiracies going on around the world. And of course, as many people who spread conspiracy theories, he was the one who saw through all of this. So he's sort of the great leader that is needed at the moment because he's the one who sees through, you know, behind the curtain what's going on. And that's why you need to, you know, support him because he's always perpetually running for president of the United States. Lyndon LaRouche ran for president in every election for about 30 years from the mid-70s to the mid-aughts. While he never had the numbers to come close to a nomination, he had a devoted following, sometimes described as a cult, who
who in the mid-80s infiltrated the Democratic Party by winning some primaries for state office. Today, no less influential a figure than Roger Stone has expressed admiration for LaRouche, and I can't help but find parallels between LaRouche and Trump, who himself drifted from the left to the right during the course of his political career and over the course of his several failed presidential campaigns and single successful campaign, espoused numerous conspiracy claims. As for the LaRoucheite cult infiltrating the Democratic Party, I find it very similar to QAnon wackos consuming the Republican Party from within, though the latter have proven far more successful as they currently hold some sway over the Republican majority leader in the House of Representatives. LaRouche's principal mouthpiece was his magazine Executive Intelligence Review, which in 1985 supported the claim that HIV was engineered at Fort Detrick, but with one crucial twist. After the Soviets published this article in Literaturnaya Gazeta, he was probably one of the few people in the United States who sort of picked up on it. He actually translated it and published it in his Executive Intelligence Review, and he put his own twist on it. He said, well, this is the confession by the Soviets. Yeah, they're accusing the United States of developing this as a bioweapon at Fort Detrick. But actually, you know, the Soviets could have actually developed them themselves. And the fact that they're accusing the United States suggests that actually it's the Soviets who are developing it as a bioweapon. Of course, this only launched a disinformation war with the Soviets citing parts of LaRouche's claims as further support for their own allegations. Yeah, it was sort of funny because they sort of argued back and forth, accusing each other, and the Soviets would pick up on what LaRouche was saying, and they would sort of recycle it in their disinformation, add elements from his conspiracy theory, and then LaRoucheites would see, oh, what did the Soviets say? Okay, we'll add this other twist to it to show that it's actually the Soviets who are behind it. And so they sort of, you know, built this conspiracy theory together. But LaRouche's conspiracy mongering went further. Much like COVID conspiracy claims decades later, his AIDS conspiracy claims involved anti-vaccinationism. It was actually, this was at a time when, um, especially on the American right, there's this new development of the video cassette recorder, the VCR, and, you know, like uh, a lot of, you know, conservatives or, you know, even religious figures would sell their VCR cassettes. (laughs) There's this fellow named Robert Strecker, and he developed his, the Strecker Memorandum. It wasn't just a memorandum that he and his brother Theodore Strecker had written, but then he also developed this video that became very popular explaining the origins of AIDS, that it was a bioweapon. Uh, it was probably developed by the U.S. government at Fort Detrick. But what he said and what LaRouche said was basically, well, you know, at Fort Detrick, it was through the National Institutes of Health was responsible because actually they were in charge of Fort Detrick at the time. They stopped using it for bioweapons research. And they basically said that what happened was that through the World Health Organization of the UN was was infiltrated by the communists. They infiltrated the US government. They infiltrated the NIH. And they developed it at Fort Detrick for the Soviet Union. See, so the Rouge sort of saw behind all of this. And Strecker did too, that they were the ones that developed it at Fort Detrick for the Soviet Union. And then what Strecker also said, though, well, how did this virus get into the world then, you know, from Fort Detrick? And then he basically said, well, they used it through this. There was a hepatitis B vaccine that was developed. It turned out to be a very successful vaccine. 
uh, but they had tested it especially among uh, homosexuals, uh, gays in New York City. And that was the beginning of the spread in the United States. And then in the case of Africa, that there were basically polio vaccinations and other vaccinations where they put the virus in to see it spread in Africa to get rid of unwanted populations. Furthermore, his publications endorsed the notion that AIDS could be spread through even casual contact, like through insect bites, through the exchange of saliva and kissing, and the old myth about toilet seats. On the basis of these groundless fears, he organized support for a 1986 ballot initiative in California that, if it had passed, would have enforced the HIV testing of every Californian and resulted in the removal and forced confinement of those who tested positive. We need to test everybody, quarantine them. He didn't say the term camps, but, you know, you sort of understood <laughs> what he was sort of pointing towards. But at the time, he's basically saying, you know, this means the destruction of Western civilization. It sort of goes back to the 50s. You know, there was the Red Scare. Alongside the Red Scare was sort of this Lavender Scare. You know, like there's these homosexuals in the U.S. government, and they tend to be communists, and they're a threat. And so this is sort of a rehash of this old sort of conspiracy theory and a new form. But now it's AIDS, right? Frighteningly enough, almost a third of Californians voted for this. Eventually, the AIDS disinformation campaign seems to have been officially discontinued. When the disease began to spread more widely in the Soviet Union in the late 80s, and suddenly the Kremlin was more interested in trading medical research about it, Mikhail Gorbachev found the U.S. Secretary of State less than cooperative because of the known KGB campaign to blame the disease on America. Suddenly, Official organs of the state, like the newspapers Izvestia and Sovetskaya Rossiya, disavowed the HIV as U.S. bioweapon thesis. And of course, within a few years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the active measure would be admitted to, as I shared earlier. Nevertheless, Jakob Segal would continue to promote his claims until his death in 1995 and media outlets continued to amplify his misinformation through interviews. He apparently believes in his own thesis, or he wants to believe in it. And one of the things that Segal recommended was aspirin as a treatment, saying in the early phases of HIV, the pharma industry, now we're getting into the pharma industry conspiracy theories, right? The next stage. The pharma industry is trying to develop, you know, this AZT thing, which supposedly combats AIDS, but not really. And here, you know, they don't want to admit it, but, they, you know, there's this easy treatment. Just take aspirin in the early phases and it'll stop it, you know, and it's tracks. So, you know, Segal's promoting all of these alternative cures as well up until he dies. It is hard to imagine that he truly believed all the claims he made, such as that aspirin was the cure for HIV and the pharmaceutical industry was covering up this simple remedy. But there is a sense that many of those involved in the KGB campaign believed that while they may have been spreading unproven claims, the claims were likely true or at least reflected a broader reality about the corruption and immorality of the U.S. government. Yes, I think he believed them. Uh... But this gets back to a very difficult question, what is truth, right? And for somebody like Jakob Segal, 
for example, he believed in communist ideology, so-called scientific socialism. So there are these laws of society from Marxism-Leninism, and that's the truth. Just as much as, let's say, you do a you know scientific experimentation, you come up with results, right? That's also a type of truth. And for Segal, maybe there wasn't a difference between them. They were part of the same larger truth that's out there. Uh, interestingly, something I've seen with uh, conspiracy theorists or conspiracy theories is what are the things people say? Okay, how can you tell if something's a conspiracy theory? Uh, it's a question of falsifiability. Five percent evidence that the conspiracy theory is false. Instead of you know perhaps changing their theory or basically saying, well, okay, maybe I was wrong. Instead, they'll make up some reason why it can't be falsified. And oftentimes they'll say, okay, well, the person who's presenting this evidence, first of all, it's fake evidence, even if it's true, and that means the person is somehow involved in the conspiracy or covering things up, right? So they're part of the conspiracy. But another thing I've noticed that oftentimes happens with conspiracy theories, and I think this is something that often isn't mentioned, is sometimes people say, "Okay, well maybe you're right, maybe the facts are right that you know, okay, maybe it wasn't exactly like you know this person said about how HIV was developed at Fort Detrick as a bioweapon, but you know it's sort of part of a higher truth. There's a higher truth of you know the U.S. government is out to get us, and in that sense, then this is true." Well, the disinformation specialist had sort of the same thing. Like one of the HVA officers, who was well, the one who was in charge of disinformation, the Stasi Wolfgangbreath, uh, he liked to talk about the historical process and that you know eventually even this you know AIDS disinformation would be proven to be true in the sense that this is what imperialism is like, right? This is the sort of things they do. They're evil, and so it also has to do with images of the enemy. Right. This shows how evil the United States is, and the United States is so evil, and therefore eventually it'll be proven true. Or even if it's not true, at least as an allegory, it's part of a higher truth, true in spirit, if not in fact. <laughs> Thus, it is possible that though he knew his thesis rested on assumptions, he still believed it likely. And looking at his later claims, we get the sense that eventually he came to truly believe his arguments. And simply sank further and further into conspiracist delusions. For example, he would eventually finger a specific scientist, someone who had actually done a great deal to fight the AIDS epidemic, as the central villain of his narrative, responsible for the creation of HIV. Dr. Robert Gallo co-discovered HIV as the cause of AIDS in 1984, and during his long career. Most of which was devoted to ending the epidemic. He developed the HIV blood test, but in Jakob Segal's fevered imagination, since Gallo was head of the National Cancer Institute's Laboratory of Tumor Cell Biology in the 70s, and since in 1971, after his ban of biological weapons, Nixon converted Fort Detrick into a cancer research center. Segal saw this as de facto proof that Gallo had synthesized HIV at Fort Detrick. In fact, the NCI was extremely transparent about the cancer research conducted at Fort Detrick, and the Soviet Union's Minister of Health even toured their lab in 1972. In terms of Segal, his fascination with Gallo. Uh, early on, he didn't basically blame Gallo as the creator of AIDS, but then later, as he was interviewed more and more, he, you know, elaborated upon his thesis, and then he later said that you know Gallo was basically the person who developed the AIDS virus. 
at you know Fort Detrick for the U.S. military. Uh, his wife Lily Segal was actually involved in helping him and was you know involved in the research. Uh, she said you know she always thought Gallo had something to do with the mafia just because he had an Italian name, which is sort of a you know a slur against Italian Americans. You know all Italian Americans are somehow have something to do with the mafia. Interestingly, Jacob Segal's obsession with Robert Gallo, his scapegoating of a respected scientist who was fighting the disease as being the actual person responsible for the creation of it, seems to me to parallel the bizarre and insupportable COVID conspiracy claims that have surrounded Dr. Anthony Fauci for the last few years. Yeah, you could say that there are certain uh, similarities here. Despite the fact that the inner workings of the Soviet disinformation campaign have been exposed and its thesis proven false, the conspiracy claim has gone on to do serious harm, especially in Africa, which was and is ravaged by the disease and because of that has proven to be fertile ground for the propagation of the myth. The fact that the consensus of the scientific community remains that AIDS spread to humans from monkeys in Africa has made Africans and even African scientists defensive and more open to alternative narratives that do not seem to lay blame on them, even though, of course, no blame is actually being placed on African peoples, since it was a matter of natural cross-species transmission. As AIDS has ravaged African nations, we again have seen the tendency of those most marginalized and most affected by an epidemic giving the most credence to conspiracy claims that offer some explanation of their suffering and lay blame on an oppressive villain. For example, one newspaper in Zimbabwe in 1991 added to the myth complex the wild allegation that the CIA had spread the disease by distributing, quote, AIDS-oiled condoms, end quote, to other countries. Major African political figures and social activists even publicly promoted the notion that AIDS was an ethnic weapon created by white powers that be to destroy Africa long after this was refuted, such as Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe and Kenyan Nobel laureate Wangari Matai. Of course, the continued spread of these conspiracy claims has variously discouraged safe sex practices and contributed to AIDS denialist claims that effective treatments like antiretrovirals are ineffective and alternative treatments like Sagal's aspirin doses are preferable. Later on, there's other alternative therapies. He talks about other ones that were being promoted like Kimron in Kenya, which was actually promoted by the Nation of Islam in the United States. He was supposedly doing research with one of his co-authors, Ronald Daimler. They had a special research facility financed by the East German Ministry of Health to look at uh, treating HIV with ultraviolet radiation of the blood. You just let the sun in, you recycle somebody's blood through this machine, you let it into the sunlight, it oxygenizes the blood, and then this leads to the destruction of HIV. That was their hypothesis course, it was ineffective. So this was sort of the beginning of sort of the alternative treatment. So you go from the conspiracy theory and the disinformation saying, oh, oh, you know, what the scientists are saying about the origins of AIDS is just all lies. But if they're lying about that and they're tricked about that, then maybe what they're saying about treatment is wrong, 
right? Because if they're so stupid to think that, you know, HIV wasn't developed in a laboratory, they think it's the natural origin, and they don't seem to know anything about really HIV and where it comes from or this AIDS virus, then when they tell me I should engage in only in safe sex or abstain from sex, or I should wear a condom, or I should engage in certain behaviors, I should get myself tested. Well, if they're, you know, idiots about where it came from or what it is, then they're probably idiots about what to do about it. And so then people come along and feel the void and say, well, you know, there's an alternative treatment for this. <laughs> After COVID, I know a lot of this sounds, <laughs> it's sort of funny that I was writing about this before COVID, but now it seems like, you know, this is how things happen. The fallout of these false conspiracy claims has been deadly. In the case of South Africa, because they believed in these conspiracy theories, right, about the origins of HIV AIDS and about, you know, the treatments and the pharma industry and saying, oh, alternative therapies, whatever, the government under Thabo and Becky uh, at the end of the 1990s or the beginning of the 2000s, even though it had been proven by that point, you know, these antiretrovirals work, they refused to adopt them. And because of their late adoption, like tens of thousands of South Africans died needlessly. Uh, from HIV AIDS, or at least that's what a lot of scientists have stated. Although the Soviet AIDS disinformation program was eventually ended and even acknowledged after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Russian intelligence has continued to make similar claims about other diseases. Using the same playbook, epidemics such as SARS and Ebola were routinely asserted to have been engineered by U.S. scientists at Fort Detrick as bioweapons. Right. Well, for example, uh, with the Ebola epidemic, you know, before you have the KGB, now you have Russia Today. <laughs> or these other sort of Sputnik news, all of these sort of, you know, these uh, official platforms that spread disinformation. And for example, when there was this Ebola outbreak, I think it was around 2014 or 2013 in Africa, uh, they basically recycled the same disinformation. They were publishing on their platform these claims that, oh, guess what? There's this new virus in Africa, Ebola. Guess what? The U.S. government's doing bioweapons experiments. Guess what? It came from Fort Detrick. And they basically recycled the same disinformation. They just used a different virus, same location, same sort of claims about its spread. And of course, it's what they usually do is there's some Western expert or some Western scientist or somebody who basically believes some sort of conspiracy theory. And they cite this person and say, oh, well, this is, you know, proof. Here's an American himself who says, you know, it came from a lab. And yeah, so, yeah, here's sort of the smoking gun. And among the many justifications for his invasion of the Ukraine that Putin threw at the world to see what might stick one was the accusation that U.S.-sponsored biological weapons research was being conducted at Ukrainian facilities. Now, in terms of Ukraine, that's interesting because this actually goes back to this way I was telling you about this Operation Cockroaches and, you know, AIDS may invade India, you know, this idea that, you know, neighboring Pakistan, you know, there's this laboratory of the Americans doing research on these deadly viruses and they could come across the border to India. Well, what happened was there's this uh, cooperative uh, threat reduction program where the U.S. and actually Russia at the time in the 90s, I think it was, the Nunluger program, they basically made these agreements with former Soviet republics 
to basically get rid of their nuclear and biological weapons capabilities and close down these old bioweapons labs because of this giant offensive Soviet bioweapons program and the different former Soviet republics. And so what they did was they established this program so that there would be research facilities in some of these countries like Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, where there are formerly these biological weapons facilities, basically to hire the scientists to do research on viruses to prevent their spread, right? Sort of like what the Centers for Disease Control does in the United States as a way to keep these scientists hired, doing useful research instead of them saying, oh God, I, I've been fired, I don't have a job anymore. Well, maybe I'll just go to Iran or North Korea since they're offering me all this money to, you know, develop bioweapons there. <laughs> Basically, no, maybe we should, you know, keep these people, maybe we should destroy this old program, but somehow keep these people employed and, you know, doing constructive work. And that's sort of what they've been doing. But what, under Putin, what they've been doing for a number of years now is, for example, in Georgia or in other countries, they'll say, Oh, now there's this threat that, you know, there's this U.S. bioweapons lab, right, as opposed to this sort of a, a new facility to stop them doing bioweapons research. There's this U.S. lab there, you know, in Georgia or whatever, and they're doing these experiments on viruses, and they could spread, you know, across the border to Russia, and we're being threatened, right? So there's sort of this whole sort of disinformation being recycled again. New bioweapons, same sort of thesis, you know, stick different, you know, countries' names in there, different labs, but it all goes back to Fort Detrick coming across the border. There's this threat across the border, which of course brings us to the Ukraine war and the bioweapons labs in the Ukraine. Again, this is all just recycled disinformation. It goes back to the Patriot in 1983, and they just basically recycled it to say, oh, yeah, this is evidence for the war in Ukraine. Wherever they could pick up on something, for example, um, some of the tests for COVID or whatever and blood samples of Ukrainians was done in the United States. And then, you know, of course, the Russians pick up on this and then they twist it and say, oh, they're studying the gen genome of, you know, Ru ethnic Russians in Ukraine so they can use it as a better COVID bioweapon against Russians, blah, blah, blah. You have the killer mosquitoes again, right? Just like in <laughs> Lahore in 1982-3, now the killer mosquitoes are in Ukraine and they're going to come across the border of Russia. You know, mosquitoes are being weaponized. They're now birds, I guess, is the latest thing, you know, migratory birds. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's so ludicrous. In fact, it has even been claimed that COVID was developed by the U.S. at Fort Detrick in what appears to be a Chinese disinformation campaign intended to throw the lab leak theory back in American faces. And they've done that with the series of diseases, whatever developed afterwards. Also, they've done it with COVID, uh, claiming that, you know, it came from Fort Detrick. Actually, though, in the case of the Fort Detrick and COVID, actually, the Chinese have been spreading that even more than the Russians for, you know, reasons that they've been blamed, you know, the China virus, right? They've been blamed for this virus or supposedly constructing or whatever. And so they've fought back by just, you know, making these harebrained claims about, you know, Fort Detrick again. This long history of disinformation campaigns and false accusations lobbed back and forth with nations accusing and counter-accusing each other of engineering and releasing diseases that actually spread naturally should teach us, if we aren't affected by a bad case of historical blindness, that we should be cautious and disbelieve any such claims until there is irrefutable evidence 
about the actual origins of diseases. Yeah, I do have some <laughs> doubts about it. Part of the problem is this.、Um, I wouldn't deny that there's perhaps a small percentage chance, based on the evidence we have today, that the COVID virus might have leaked out of this lab in China. I think. The consensus amongst most scientists is actually that it's of natural origin, that it came. Okay, this wet market. Who knows if that was it? But they seem to center around this wet market in、uh, Wuhan. Originally, it probably came from somewhere else. So I have、uh, I have very many doubts that it came out of the lab. But the other thing is, there's this tendency to say, well, if it was a lab leak, it's also a Chinese bio weapon. Right. So saying that you know a virus leaked out of a lab because somebody was sloppy is different than saying it's a bioweapon that leaked out of the lab, and that's I find that's totally there's no evidence for that. I mean, the Chinese themselves, you know, they would have to deal with the bioweapon leak, and I don't think that they were necessarily doing that here. I don't see any evidence for that. As Dr. Selvage expressed to me in our interview, any notion that the U.S. developed COVID or that it was created as a bioweapon in China, or even that it leaked accidentally from their lab, really, in a way, exonerates the Chinese government for what they did do, for their secrecy about the initial spread of the disease and their lack of international cooperation since. One of the main problems I find with all of this is the fact that, especially under the Trump administration, they were really pushing, saying, "Oh, this is a lab leak," and in some cases, saying it was a bioweapon. Is that that makes it easy for the Chinese? The Chinese can say, "Oh, the Americans are lying. It's from Fort Detrick, <laughs> right?" And so they sort of go back to the old Fort Detrick thesis about HIV, but now it's COVID, or actually, you know, the U.S. developed HIV at Fort Detrick, and now they developed COVID at Fort Detrick. Blah blah blah. Uh, and it basically lets the Chinese off the hook because they were so irresponsible, right? They failed to see the signals of the epidemic. You know, they failed to warn the world about the epidemic that was already happening in China. They failed to curtail travel outside of China. There's so many things that the Chinese did that were wrong, and you know, basically brought this to the rest of the world. And it's actually very nice for them to be able to, you know, sort of boil things down. Oh, was it developed at Fort Detrick as a bioweapon, or was it developed at Wuhan as a bioweapon? Right? And it, it basically lets them off the hook. You know, the fact that they won't let people investigate properly in China. Of course, that's one of the reasons that the conspiracy theory has arisen, but only one reason. It's a cheap way for them to get off the hook, and the fact that this is being spread, the people think, oh, this will show how evil China is. Well, yeah, good. I don't particularly like the government there either. I don't like their, you know,、uh, genocidal policies with regard to the Uyghurs, for example, or what they've done in Hong Kong. I don't like their dictatorship.、Uh, but、uh, by boiling it down to just, oh, was it their lab or our lab? I mean, it it's <laughs> it just lets them off the hook, and the rest of the world is just so like. When the United States then says, "Well, you know, the Chinese government was irresponsible," oh, you're just saying it came from a lab, right? There, that it was a lab leak, it was a bioweapon. That's just crap, you know. And that basically, in a sense, it gives them an alibi. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. To hear my interview with Dr. Douglas Selvage in its entirety. 
pledge support on Patreon, as I'll be releasing the interview there sometime before the next episode. Once again, please support the podcast by taking the short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave, or click on the link in the episode notes. You can also help support the show by going to hellofresh.com slash historical 60 and using the code historical 60 for 60% off plus free shipping during the next few months after this episode's release. Check out the blog post for this episode, which should go up on historicalblindness.com sometime before the next episode for a transcript, related imagery, and citations for further reading. Specifically, check out the research of Dr. Selvage, which I'll cite on that blog post. Huge thanks to Dr. Douglas Selvage for chatting with me about this. Thank you. It's been great talking with you. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows, like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which just finished a series on the fall of the USSR, and the Unbiased Science Podcast, which has done good work refuting COVID misinformation. Some music on this episode is from Kai Ingle, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music on this episode is licensed through Blue Dot Sessions. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes or find me on Venmo at Historical Blindness. Until next time, remember, just because a newspaper prints a claim doesn't make it true. But that doesn't mean that claims about the free American press being controlled in a massive conspiracy of silence and official cover-up are the least bit tenable. <laughs>